out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Tanya Pearson, who is the um, a public historian and director of The Women of Rock All History, which is a collection of interviews and written transcripts documenting the lives and careers of women musicians in the world that is rock and roll and also um, apart from having a musical career herself has written a book titled why marianne faithful matters and this is going to be coming out on the university of texas press and i do believe faber and faber in the uk and probably elsewhere anyway that's going to be coming out in july 2021 Right, so anyway, you're going to find out lots more about Tanya. Also, she has a very good website. If you put tanyapearson.org, it's all there and much more. Anyway, look, this is it. And after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years in the world that is rock and roll, pop, music, all that kind of groovy stuff. Anyway, Tanya, it is over to you. Well, I went pretty much from Madonna so Madonna was my person when I yeah. was, I mean, from the time I was, I was born in 81 and I remember being two and I had the Madonna poster over my bed and I went from Madonna to kind of coming of age in the nineties. So right. my whole thing was like Nirvana, grunge, whole, you know, I went from pop music, playing saxophone, band geek to forcing my mom to buy me like a little electric practice amp and electric guitar. And uh, yeah, I got really into all of the kind of 90s grunge phenomenon. And there were a lot of um, women on the radio then, like loud, um, abrasive, you know, rock and roll women. So um, yeah, I guess that was my my sort of musical awakening, yeah. Yes, because it was quite an interesting period because I suppose in the 80s there was this indie pop. And then I did an interview with some guys yesterday who just brought a book out called, I don't know, it was on hair metal. Well, they didn't call it hair metal, but that LA rock scene of the sort of the 80s, which was kind of basically hair metal, isn't it? And they just brought this book yeah. out called Nothing Could Be So Good. So that was kind of interesting hearing about that kind of scene because what I realised during that 80s and then in the 90s, there are just so many different tribes that have kind of sprung up and everybody had their little kind of tribe. But the thing that I've found doing this kind of um, podcast and doing these shows is that most bands have a five-year narrative and mm. and then they think, actually, we just can't do this anymore because we're just burnt out. And then yeah. there's a new scene that comes along. And I sort of realised with the 80s, there's suddenly about 87, 88, kind of the world of ecstasy comes along. And all those bands like what I was early into, like the Smiths, basically, all these kind of jingly jangly sounds, they'd sort of like, oh, well, we've just had it. We just hate each other, basically. So, And then the next kids come along and they go, right, you know, the next kind of wave comes along. And that was kind of the the kind of rave scene. And then it's the kind of the grunge scene that knocks it out. So when you came along, it was the kind of post nevermind, wasn't it? Yeah, because I was only I was only 10 in 91 when Nevermind came out. So I had no uh it wasn't really in my radar then. But I'd say like 93, 94 was um 
I remember when In Utero came out. And so it was, for me, it was Nirvana. And then Kurt Cobain would talk about bands all the time. A lot of them were female fronted bands, you know, like he took the breeders on tour with them. So then I got really into the breeders, which led me to the, to like the Pixies, Kim Deals, um, you know, pre breeders bands. Obviously he was married to Courtney Love. So um, Hole, Live Through This came out in 94. Then because of Hole, I got into L7 and Babes in Toyland, but it was really, at the time I was um, living in the suburbs, oldest child, none of my peers were into that kind of music. Um, you know, most of my friends were going to like Dave Matthews and concerts and tailgating and classic <laughs> things like that. So I did a lot of, um, as much research as I could on my own. So this was even pre-internet. I would go to bookstores, I'd buy people's um, biographies or I'd buy autobiographies. I would read about what those musicians listened to and then I would find bands that they were influenced by. So yes. that's also how I, I discovered like Lydia Lunch from Sonic Youth and I discovered Susie and the Banshees from Courtney Love talking about Susie Sue. But, um, it was really from reading like Spin Magazine or, you know, I'd buy, like I bought the Rolling Stone Women of Rock book, which um, it was just, you know, all of these female mus musicians who, um, it was basically a big essay compilation, but uh, like PJ Harvey was in it. And so I got into PJ Harvey. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was a lot of like sleuthing. I considered myself, um, like an investigative journalist, <laughs> even back then. <laughs> well, it's interesting because when I grew up in the sort of 70s and, and I suppose during the 80s as, as well, I mean, I had an older brother who was seven years older and he had one of those kind of Rolling Stone magazine um, books, which was kind of on cl the classic albums. And they always had, that was like Marvin Gaye, What's Going On, The Pet Sounds, you know, Sergeant Pepper, Van Morrison. Then there was all those other bands like, or artists like Joni Mitchell, you know, Court and Spark and Tapestry by um, Carol King. So I think that's that's kind of, I had a similar thing. You couldn't go on the internet. You had to just literally yeah. look at this, be kind of fascinated, then go to the record library, borrow the record, put yeah. it on a tape and listen to it and think, oh, this is a bit strange, you know, but because there was no kind of, there was no build up. It was just like Court and Spark thinking, hmm, okay. You know, yeah. this, you know, but eventually, you know, you become obsessed with it and think this is the best album in the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but at first, you know, because there's no one listening to it and there's nothing, there's no scene. You can't even go and swap stories because people just go, Joni Mitchell, who's that? You know, so it, it was kind of a strange. Yeah, and it was very isolating. Yeah, before the internet, which I'm not saying that that's a, a bad thing because everything was this like precious treasure or a discovery. Um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of liked it. I miss it sometimes. Yes, well, I do. It, 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 yeah. it was fun. I must admit, I, I became obsessed with a band called Spirit, who had this one their album called 12 Dreams of Doctors for, for Concerts, something like that. And anyway, it was just one of those ones that no one had ever heard about Spirit from this West Coast scene that um, featured Randy California, and everyone just thought, no, David, that's, oh. just, that's just a conversational cul-de-sac you've just gone in there. So um, then yeah. it was a tr it was it was kind of interesting. But what was quite interesting because in the sort of seventies we did have the classic kind of women singer songwriters like 
um, Joni Mitchell and Carol King. And then in the 80s, we had, we had like, there was, well, there was also Joan Armatrain, but then there was uh, Tracy Chapman, Susan Vega, and Michelle Schott came along. And, and that kind of was quite something. But then we also had people like Susie, um, Susie Quattro, who was very yes. exciting in the 70s. And then we had the early punk stuff and, and with Susan the Banshees. But it was Kurt Cobain that used to go on about people like the Raincoats and the Marine Girls. Who were yeah, I never really... would have, the Vaselines, like I became, I'm still an enormous Vaselines fan. Francis McKee is one of my favorite people ever, but I never would have heard of them at the time had it not been for Kurt Cobain. So, yes. Well, funny enough, when they came to Norwich, they were supporting the band called Tad on eight, their 89. And I did in interview Kurt Cobain and, and the, the, that original lineup. And um, yeah. he mentioned the Vaselines, and I was like, God, I've never even heard of them. I feel so yeah. embarrassed. He said, they're from Scotland. Everyone knows the Vaselines. It's like, this is 89. <laughs> I don't know who the Vaselines yeah. are. I just know there's a, there's a line in a David Bowie song about tigers moving like on Vaseline. But apart from that, I've really, you know, <laughs> it's, it's completely gone. So, yeah, again, it was one of those slightly embarrassing ones. But I was really impressed that sort of ability that he had of kind of un, un, sort of unearthing all these really obscure bands. Yeah which was very good. So as the 90s went along and everyone got very excited because it was kind of a real rock time, what then sort of, how did your next kind of musical moment develop? Um, well, yeah, so my mom got me the guitar and the amp and I just became obsessed with music. All I did, like I'm still very introverted, but all I did was sit in my room, write songs, go outside. I started smoking cigarettes because I thought that was really cool because everyone smoked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so occasionally I would go out in the backyard and smoke cigarettes. Um, and I started a band in high school with, I found uh, three weirdos, like the three weirdos who would be in a band with me. It was two girls. And then I didn't know any, I didn't know a girl who played drums. So um, I got my friend Chris, who was actually like a really phenomenal drummer. Um, we, the three of us, the three girls, we were terrible at our instruments. We had just started and he was like a prodigy. Um, so I think he did it just because he got to hang out with like the one hot older girl uh, <laughs> who was in our band. And, um, we were sort of like, I don't know that, that was interesting because it sort of, prefaced my the rest of my experiences being in bands like people tolerated us and the other guys tolerated us but everyone made fun of us behind our backs and like <laughs> ripped our posters down always got made fun of by guys in bands for for my musical tastes and for like my band t-shirts which weren't cool enough um but that was my, yeah, I don't know. That that was my first attempt at, at doing music or creating music. And I wrote songs all the time alone in my room. I had a, I still have it, a digital eight track recorder, which I talk about all the time because I've had it since 1997 and it still works and I still use it. Classic. Um, yeah, I know. It's, pretty, it's in my closet right now. <laughs> I take it out sometimes. <laughs> but um yeah, so 
Is that answer? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The, the early okay. musical moment, actually. So with yeah, your, with, and then with... I remember getting America Online. So that was really, that was a big deal as far as meeting other people outside of my high school uh, who had similar musical tastes was like the advent of dial-up internet. Yes. And so I would play music, but then I'd also sit in front of my computer after school and I joined all these kind of fan chat rooms and and these people and I would exchange mixtapes in the mail. So I learned about um, more bands that way, or if there was something that I couldn't get at my local record store, I could find someone in the chat room who would like make me a tape and mail me a tape. So oh it did God. kind of open up this whole new world which is yes my god i just had a, that moment when you mentioned um you know dial up it just was like it was a bit of like oh my god of course the, you know, the dial up normal. sound as you're waiting yeah and being a bit because in this country it was very it's kind of quite expensive so you'd always be a bit freaked yeah. out about how long you're on the phone for on the internet and to be honest there weren't many websites to go and visit either so it was a bit like i don't know it was still a very early time in the Yes, the nineties was strange. Yeah, it was. Yes. Yeah, I think it was like ninety eight. We got dial up ninety seven or ninety eight. Yeah, and I didn't go to websites. I just went on and joined these music groups to meet people. <laughs> that was really. <laughs> I don't remember any websites. Yeah. No, there weren't any. I, that was true. I'm well, actually, now I'm got got them. Slightly going on, but we used to get these books where you could go and look for websites, or you know, like oh, you know, like the, we had something called the yellow pages that would be in the public phone box, and you yeah. would sort of go, I need a plumber, I need somebody to cut the lawn, and you you'd sort of see all these kind of trades. I mean, obviously that went straight out the window with with the internet, but then yeah, so so you get these books, and it's like oh, if you if you like publishing or if you like record companies, you could go and type these kind of addresses in, which would seem to be forever. But yeah, we had all these big kind of books sitting on the bookshelf, you know. And, and there was yeah, I had those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. then, Kids today, they don't they don't appreciate the work that went into like finding something cool for yeah, a band. And, and, and we <laughs> vaguely were calling it the information superhighway at that time as well. So we were yeah. very nerdy. That was yeah. well, a very short <laughs> couple of weeks, actually. But then so because it's interesting because I don't know if you've seen that film um, with Jimmy Iovine, you know, who was talking about beats with Dr. Dre, because that period in the 90s, everything changes so much, doesn't it, with music, kind of, yeah. and, and one generation sort of goes and another generation comes in, and we often sort of slightly struggle to kind of un understand what the hell the new generation are talking about. So how did you sort of start to navigate when, when sort of the Marilyn Manson started to appear and then sort of gangster rap and, and all that kind of world? Um, I mean, I remember, like, it just didn't, uh, I was very single-minded at the time. I think, I think I'm a lot more curious now, but I would say that in the 90s, my focus was just people who looked like me, who made uh, music, and, uh, you know, I wasn't necessarily a uh, gregarious or loud and abrasive so I really looked up to um you know especially the these feminist women who were like outspoken and you know writing uh slogans on their chest and lipstick and indelible marker it's like I wanted to be that so I think everything else in 
until I got much older and went back to school and now I'm in this role of music historian, I didn't think much about anything else that was going on. I was just like, this doesn't interest me. Um, I would, you know, if I, I remember hearing um, Lil' Kim and the first time I heard Missy Elliott, that blew me away. Um, so I was interested in that because it sort of, uh, it reflected, you know, it was someone that, someone like me, you know, it was women that I wanted mm. to see. Gangster rap at the time, um, I found it very off-putting because I just thought I had no interest in the like violence and the sexism and um, it's not to say I don't like hip hop or rap, but just at the time, um, I didn't get it. I didn't like it. Marilyn Manson, I didn't understand how anyone liked or listened to that. And I remember when that whole mall goth thing happened with the Marilyn Manson rising to popularity and all of the guys at my school, they started to dress that way. And I just thought it was um, really commercial and kind of trite and a little boring so I never I just kind of ignored it and kept yes. Yes. you know so I, I like I said I'm an introvert so I was still in my room I was like in what's funny too is I was super I was intent and adamant about being a musician so 16 17 18 I would say until I was like 23 that was all I wanted to do obviously failed miserably at it um, but that was the only care that I had in the world. <laughs> I didn't care about anything <laughs> else at the time. Well, it's, yeah. inter it's, it's interesting because most bands, you know, like I probably mentioned, have that five-year narrative. And in this country, especially from that period that I'm particularly obsessed with, the 80s, you know, they, they would get, they were sort of, I suppose that actually in the UK in the 80s, there was quite a lot of unemployment and being unemployed was quite easy and you could just get, you know, your doll paid and the housing benefit. And there were various schemes that you could go on that the government quite liked because then the, the figures didn't look quite so bad. But that, that meant people could have a year just kind of basically just hanging out, smoking dope and, and making a bit of a noise. And then there was this DJ called John Peel who would play all this kind of new stuff, which was often sort of quite hit and miss, but was quite quirky. But then we also had the music papers like the NME, Melody Maker and Sounds, which were weekly. So whenever I spoke to anybody in America, they always go, my God, you have three weeklies. We just have these monthlies. And they're kind yeah. of, they don't, they, you know, they're not that desperate for content. Whereas a weekly paper is just like, oh, fantastic. We've got something mm -hmm. that can fill the pages. So it, it, there was kind of, and you, the UK, as you know, it's so tiny, isn't it? And there's all these towns and cities and every place has a sort of a venue, you know, that holds two say two or three hundred people that you know most bands can just kind of get their little transit band go around the country and basically call it a tour you know and, and so it kind of gives everyone that kind of that moment but then as I sort of said after five years and the second or third album you know they find they've got no money and they all hate each other and they just yeah. go, I've had enough because because there's nothing to stay unless you're U2 or REM there's just no reason for us to stay together evermore and um so, so it's not a very sustainable lifestyle yeah it is, it is tough, you know, four in the morning unloading stuff, unloading your amp and, and then sort of having to sort of, you know, crash out. So then what happened in your mid-twenties? Oh boy. Um, then I, um, I had a, a very uh, steep and steady decline into uh, alcoholism and drug addiction. Um, so yeah, I mean, that took up 
I remember we moved my senior year of high school, which was not great. Uh, moving senior year, <laughs> I was brand new at this school. Like I just, oh my God, I got tormented, um, you know, because I, I guess I looked kind of alternative or I just, I looked different um, than the rest of the kids in this new place we were living. It was like this little seaside town. And uh, so I barely graduated high school. Um, I had to kind of meet new people all over again. So again, thank you, America Online. Um, I tried to start a few bands. And um, when I graduated high school, I, f I found all of these like punks and indie guys. So again, like this part of my life, I was always the only girl who played music. I could never find, I had female friends, but none of them were interested in like participating. Yeah. They would come to shows, they were spectators, but I couldn't really talk any of them into picking up an instrument. Um, so I played in bands uh, with guys most of the time. I played in some punk bands. I played drums in like this noise kind of, post-punk two-piece and I was still playing guitar and singing sort of like benign kind of boring indie rock <laughs> um and uh yeah just everyone that I was around drank number one um the drugs didn't I wasn't I didn't try drugs I was just like a raging alcoholic for a very long time in the last two years of my drinking, I discovered drugs. And then I think that that thankfully sort of sped up my descent. Um, but I really, I really just spent close to a decade uh, playing in bands, working dead end jobs. Um, I m moved around a lot. I lived in Providence for a while. Then I moved to Boston, but always like, um, always kind of moving around from friend group to friend group because mm -hmm. I was such a mess and I didn't really want to be discovered. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there, I do have some regret because um, I'm such a motivated like workaholic that <laughs> I do. I, I mean, I'm sure you heard this in the, the Lydian spin, but Lydia is always telling me like, not to be hard on myself and not, you know, who cares? Like the, the past is the past. But um, yeah, it's like, I lived in Providence at this really cool time um, where there were all these warehouse spaces in this area of Providence called Onlyville. Right. So there were bands like Arab on Radar, Lightning Bolt, um, my friends, and they were in this band called As the Sunsets, which then became Daughters. So it was this really, really cool underground totally DIY scene in Providence that I was a part of but most of it I was just so messed up all the time that I number one didn't appreciate it and number two I couldn't get my act together well enough to really accomplish anything even musically yeah, uh, yeah. I remember like Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore would come to that was always if there was a warehouse show people would be like Kim and Thurston are they're over in that room seeing lightning bolt. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but that's how cool it was that, you know, then they would bring their other musician friends. So you'd see these random famous people just kind of like walking around Fort Thunder. I mean, they were warehouses where 
my friend fell through the ceiling one time when we were playing a show. So like, it wasn't safe or anything. It was a fire trap. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was cool. It was like a happening place to be. It's part of a cultural history of Providence now, and it doesn't exist anymore. It's, it has since been completely gentrified Boy. and it was just a really special moment in time. Yes, there's nothing like a bit of guilt when you look back and think those decisions you might have taken instead. I know we all do it though. That's just, that's life though, isn't it? Let's face it, you know, that's that's kind of what happens. Because it's interesting, because I did an interview with Patty from Hull, you know, Patty, I can't remember her surname. Patty Schemmel, yeah. Yes, Hit yep. So Hard, the, the film. Yeah. That must have been quite hard to watch for you then, sort of seeing a film like that. Yeah, I think it was harder, um, Patty and I, but I interviewed Patty maybe like six years ago now, and we keep it, I would say that we're, you know, we're not best friends, but we're at the very least acquaintances. We talk a lot. And uh, yeah, so I, I watched the documentary before I interviewed her. It was very difficult to watch because even though I was not, uh, you know, I never played in a Grammy nominated, um, <laughs> you know, multi, million record selling band uh the feelings are exactly the same i mean what happened to her happened to me except what i think luckily for me nobody's watching me and no one really cared so mm. there wasn't that kind of uh public fallout which i think having interviewed so many musicians whose stories are similar um seems to be like this added pressure but it's it's really it's hard to to look back um and i don't know just to like that i was ever that person because i'm so different now <laughs> yes, well, <I'm> so, <laughs> yeah yes. it's but it's, it's quite sometimes it's almost that makes the better the past feel better if if it feels quite a different person and there's mm -hmm. no kind of little strains or little kind of links that you keep, you know, whether it's people, whether habits are the same, it's really difficult until you feel like, God, okay, that is, that was a really, that's a closed chapter, which has kind of been yeah. gone and it wasn't great, but at least I'm not repeating the same mistakes. I think the repeating the mistakes is what's hard, especially when you're younger. Because yeah. you, the, the temptation is always to blame other people and you think, and then one day, you know, I have to confess, I went. I went to one of those Tony Robbins weekend workshop things. You know about sort of. You went to a Tony Robbins weekend. <laughs> yes. Always been kind of a dream, but I can't afford that shit. So. <laughs> no, so I, I went to a Tony Robbins. I can't remember. It was. I you know I bought the cheap ticket and sat at the back kind of hmm. thing, and it was quite hysterical because it was like five or six days and lots of standing up and clapping. I mean, God knows what, what, what will happen now. But I suppose there were one or two things. I mean, like anything, you know you kind of have to take certain bits of the message because he, he talks a lot about burning your bridges you know i think oh, i'm not quite sure yeah. that's always a great idea unless you've got a lot of resources that's one of my theories you know resources kind of count for a lot of stuff and i know there's yeah. that cliche like you know it's the lack of resourcefulness but i just think yeah but having lots of money in a house is quite good you know that's helpful <laughs> it's, it does helpful but i think when i listened to a lot of him there was that thing of taking responsibility so instead of me thinking oh god i fell out with that person and they were they did this this and this and it's like well i chose to be friendly with that person so that's my you know that was me you know and then i did this not because i didn't want to go through all the little things but it was just like well i 
I did initiate a certain part of that friendship and not and not other people would have done the, the same so you know and yeah there was there was kind of a there was some habits I had when I was younger of probably becoming friendly with too many people who often you know weren't the greatest folk that's slightly judgmental yeah. I know but you get the gist <laughs> I still like, do that that's like the one problem that I have left people someone told me the other day they're like I know you just try to be really nice and helpful, but they're like, you're a terrible judge of character. Like I knew that person was insane. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just thought they needed help or yeah. So maybe I should visit Tony Robbins. Tony maybe. Robbins. I know you you get you can get the gist. I mean it was quite funny. I think he has a lot of it now online, what he has to, I suppose, doesn't he? But yeah, it was yeah. kind of it was very it wasn't very British at all, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> we're so reserved and uptight it's unbelievable but you know he, yeah. he was quite a character you know because he's so big and he's yeah. huge hands but um I know, isn't of, he like seven feet tall something ridiculous and he's just you know huge you know he's just kind yeah. of uh but yes yeah, i don't know how long he's going to keep doing that because he must be in the 60s and he does kind of run around a lot but yeah. as we know that the last year it's all kind of um all stopped really so um however much you kind of yeah we keep going about the new normal, but I, I think there will just be a new something, but it won't be. Yeah, it's just going to be new. It's just going to be new, isn't it? Let's face it. And um, that's going to be rather interesting. But then, yeah, so so once you sort of, so was it? Because I did an interview with a guy, God, he was in a punk band called Eater, and they were only 14 or 15 when they started. And he, he managed to get a heroin addiction after sort of being in the band. Then he found himself going to Egypt to stay with a sort of uncle and that cleared him out. But he said it was really hard going. I mean, did you sort of have a problem sort of clearing up, cleaning up yourself at that stage? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I would say like the last two years of my addiction was when all of the really bad things happened, like arrested. Um, at the very end of my drinking, I was homeless. <laughs> And, um, yeah, I mean, I, like people have done interventions on me, you know, the, do you ever see the show intervention? No. Oh, I don't, maybe it's an American thing, but, uh, yeah. Be, uh, so it's like when, when people, um, try to force you into treatment, so oh, they'll bring my. a licensed professional in to sort of tell you, you have a problem and you need to go and get help right now. So I had that, that happened, didn't go. Um, I thought I could manage it myself. And eventually things just got so bad that I, I made a phone call myself to a, a detox treatment center and went there, stayed there for 28 days, graduated to a a basement program. It was a program in the basement of this building with like bars on the windows and uh, a lot of other women with the same problems. And then I went to, I basically just, just stayed in the program because I had no, I had no money. Um, I had like a trash bag of clothing and I had nowhere to go. So that was helpful because I, even if I wanted to leave, I didn't have anywhere to go because no one would talk to me anymore. No one would help me. So I was sort of stuck listening to these licensed professionals and being forced to take their suggestions. 
Right. So I did this like month long program and then they suggested that I go to a halfway house on Cape Cod. Um, it was called the Emerson house. It was like, there's like a painting of Ralph Waldo Emerson. It was, it's this big mansion um, in Cape Cod. And yeah, there are probably, I think like 40 women there from all different walks of life. I lived there for three months and then still didn't have an, you know, no job, no money, really no prospects, no car. I'd lost my license. So I'm on the Cape, like walking through cranberry bogs to, <laughs> I was just going to AA meetings. And um, then they suggested that I live in a sober house. So I lived in a few sober houses, which were probably the least sober places I'd ever lived in my life. <laughs> and eventually I, I got a job at a bagel shop where I worked for it's the longest job I've ever had five and a half years. Um, just lived various places on the Cape, went back to school at community college when I was like three years sober. Um, you know, just very slowly got all of these little things back. Like I had a warrant out for my arrest. So I had to deal with that. I had to deal with all these court fines in order to get my license back. So the whole sort of recovery period for me took like six years and then um i when i went back to school someone told me that i could i could get my bachelor's degree at these at a, like a very prestigious liberal arts college um so smith college and uh mount holyoke college have have special programs for uh, they call us non-traditional students. Um, and so I got a scholarship and uh, went to Smith College. So that's how I ended up in Western Mass. It was pretty much straight from, it was just basically because I got sober and like wound up in Cape Cod and met people who saw some potential in me because I certainly didn't think that I was smart or that I was a a good student or that, you know, I thought I was too old to go back to school. I was like, I was like 28. But yeah, so that's, that's how that all happened. I mean, living on Cape Cod, it was just, I was just slowly kind of like rebuilding my life and uh, doing AA and going to school and making sandwiches out of bagels. God, that's an amazing story. Tony Robbins would love that, by the way, because it's like yep. that thing where <laughs> there's like, because he says the worst thing is when the, when you still got some, I don't know, he said it's better when you sort of sometimes kind of hit the bottom so there is no, you know, you're thinking, well, there's only one way, whereas if you're still hanging on to certain things from the past, it probably makes it worse, whereas at least you're sort of open to just going forward, which is probably, in a weird way, is probably better, but it must yeah. have been quite horrendous at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it was horrible at the time. I can't say that I enjoyed any of it, but um, but there's absolutely nothing that I miss. I have been sober since I went to detox, so I'm coming up on 14 years. Don't miss it. Um, there was just I, did, there was nothing pleasant about it for me. Like I'm just a pig. I literally cannot do anything whether it's food or drinking or smoking or, you know, like I know people who can do those things. Most of my friends 
that I'm friends with where I live now are not sober people. They're just normal people. And I still watch them all the time, you know, drink like half a beer. And I have never done that in my life. (laughs) And there's no (laughs) doubt in my mind. Like, I know that I will never, ever be that person. There's something wrong with my brain where I can actually, I can feel it. Like, even if I have ice cream, I can't have things like that in my house because I will overeat and throw up ice cream all over the place because it like, it it like affects something in my brain that I am not a scientist. I only know how I feel from my experience. And, uh, I just, I can't do it. Like I need to just be constantly vigilant about anything pleasurable. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's interesting because David Bowie said the same thing about someone talking about drinking. He just said, I'm an alcoholic. So I can't, business you know I think he you know he used to go to AA meetings and all the time when he was when whenever he could because he just kind of realized that he, he knew the danger but I think he just kind of cut to the chase and went you know I can't because I'm an alcoholic whereas someone like me is a bit like well I'm not really in the mood and I'm not that bothered anymore with age you know you just kind of more and more think well I don't want to drink because I don't want to get drunk so there's no point drinking at the moment yeah. whereas I, I you know I have that kind of bizarre rationale which is just like oh I'm too old for this I'll, I have to get up in yeah. the middle of the night and go to the toilet. That's far too much effort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, I wish I, if I had to choose, I would choose to be like that um, because then I wouldn't have had to like go through all the everything that I went through. But I think, you know, it's different for everyone. Um, and I just know that for me personally, I, I can't do it. Like David Bowie, just same. Yeah. I've heard him talk about it too. And I'm like, yep. <laughs> I can identify same story. I wish that I could explain it to people um in sort of like scientific or or biological terms. I don't know it, but I can't no. <laughs> I, just, I just accept it, yeah, and it's probably easier once you sort of put a name on it rather than trying to pretend it's not something that it is, so yeah it's a lot easier. so when did when did you all sort of you know the world that is your the Women of Rock or History Project um, project begin? When did that start to sort of come into your consciousness? Yeah, that was so, that was really just random and it happened so organically. Um, so I, I got into Smith College out here in Northampton, Mass. Um, and I remember I started working in the archives there. I just thought it was a cool job. It was in, I love old things, old people, old dogs, you know, everything old. I'll take it. I like antiques. Um, my living room looks like a funeral parlor. Uh, you know? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I was, I got a work study job in the archives at the Sophia Smith collection. And, you know, I got to read like Gloria Steinem's diary and stuff like that. I was like, whoa. And uh, I was taking a bunch of classes. I kind of thought maybe I would be an English teacher or something. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do yet. Um, and uh, then I, I took this class. Um, I think it was a class on just like popular culture, um, music and popular culture. And I decided that I wanted to write um, a thesis paper on three female fronted bands from the nineties. So I wanted to write about the Breeders, L7 and Baruch Assault, three mainstream bands and how they were represented 
in rock media at the time. And I couldn't find articles, like just Googling their names. Um, I couldn't find enough to write my paper about those three bands. So I had to choose other bands. And I, I, it made me very upset <laughs> because <laughs> at the time they, they were very well documented. Um, and it just seemed to me like with the advent of the internet, all of that pre-internet history perhaps got a little lost in, in transition. Yes. Um, and so I, <laughs> because I'm an insane, I'm like, consider myself totally insane and a hustler. And <laughs> if I have an idea, I just do it. Um, and then I'll figure it out later, you know, I just do things. So I decided that because the Sophia Smith collection didn't have an extensive music collection, all, they had like women's music and then there was this huge gap and then they had started a zine collection, um, like a Riot Girl zine collection, but there was nothing in between. So I thought, okay, I'm going to ask a few people, a few women, if I can interview them because maybe... I'll do my own interviews and then I can write my paper on these bands. Mm -hmm. So it just so happened that this was in 2015. And so L7 was working on documentary. They were considering reuniting. The women in Veruca Salt had just uh, sort of like made up after a 15 year fight and they were touring again and they were working on a record. Um, so I went to the Veruca Salt concert and like waited outside and I just asked Nina and Louise if I could interview them. I totally lied and said that that I curated the Women of Rock World History Project, which did not exist yet. It did not belong at Smith College, but I just I lied and uh, they said yes. And then I was like, oh shit, how am I <laughs> going to get to Los Angeles to interview them? How am I going to get Smith College to take this collection? And, uh, like, how am I going to fund? I didn't have a camera. I didn't have anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I emailed, I saw that Lydia lunch was going to be in Providence. And I was like, great. That's just an hour from me. Emailed her totally thought she would say no. Uh, she's like, yes, absolutely. Hung out with her for two days in Providence that she was my first interview. Um, I went to Smith, to the director of the Sophia Smith collection, um, Beth Myers, and told her what I had done. <laughs> she was just like, you're crazy, but yes, we will house this collection for you. Um, so in the beginning, that was really helpful because it gave it some validity. Um, mm. And it, it did make it easier for me to, to get interviews that I wanted to get. And so, yeah, that first year I did... I think I did six six interviews. I I did interview Danita Sparks from L7. I interviewed Veruca Salt. I interviewed Josephine from The Breeders, but um, Kim Deal said that she doesn't care about posterity. And she was like, I never ever want to do an interview. So I'm still working on her. Because right. uh, I still talk to Josephine. So I'm like, all right, is Kim ready yet? I'll never <laughs> give up. Eventually it'll happen. Um, Oh yeah, I interviewed Lydia, uh, J.D. Sampson, and uh, Mary Timoney from she. Well, she plays in a lot of bands. She's a an amazing musician. Um, she played in Helium. 
she plays in X-Hex. She played in Wild Flag with Carrie Brownstein. And um, so that was my first bunch of interviews. But it really happened just because I, I wanted to write this thesis paper and I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't find enough information on these three bands to like write the paper. So. Yes, well, it's interesting because I did an interview with a, uh, a journalist who had started probably in the NME, and I think she's done a book called She's She Bop or Women in Oh, Bop. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I, would love to, yeah. I would love to know her name. Well, I was vaguely trying to Google it now. Um, and it was interesting because when she started, one of the, th the problems they had was that she was the only women writer on the paper. And in the 80s, yeah, yeah. even though this was, might have been the NME and it might have been an alternative paper, um, it was still a bloke atmosphere and it was still had all yeah. those attitudes of blokes together, you know, with they kind of, you know, oh my God, who's that? That's a woman, you know, what are they writing yeah. about music? You know, they don't understand the, the essence, you know. So I can see why there wasn't a lot of music, um, you know, written about, by, about women because there just wasn't that many women writers, was there? No, I mean, I, yeah, there are a lot more now and, uh, Oh, I wish I could remember her name too because I've read Shebop a million times. Um, <laughs> and I, I think uh, um, Helen Reddington is another really old kind of rock writer um, from the UK. And uh, oh, Marion Davies, I think. One of them actually wrote about the problem of the lack of female writers in rock journalism in the 70s and 80s and how not only was there is this huge gender discrepancy but if you were a woman and you did somehow manage to get a job in journalism like writing for a music, music magazine at the time you would have to write in the way uh that men wrote meaning sort of like perpetuating those archetypes and stereotypes. Like, I mean, you know, people, people like deify Lance Bangs and gonzo journalism, I think without acknowledging the fact that it, there was no way for a woman to ever, a woman would never be able to write like that <laughs> because yes. they were subject to a very different sets of, rules and kind of regulations and gatekeeping um yeah well it's, it's interesting that world of the gatekeeper because that's that's kind of what happened you know so much through the music industry i mean it has changed now because you don't have those very set things but the 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 problem is that there's no one narrating it all so now we just get totally loads of music and we don't know where to go to find the good stuff whereas I just yeah. went, oh, the John Peel show, the NME, that's a good start. And then after that, you know, you've, you've kind of, you're pretty well sort of in a good, in a good groove. But now it's like, when he died, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. I have no idea where to go for new music. It's just hopeless. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm confounded. It was Lucy O'Brien was the person who wrote the book, She Pop. Okay. Yeah, I definitely Lucy. didn't her name no. that wasn't but it but it was kind of interesting because i did an interview with the famous nick kent who was the nme journalist who did you know a book called the dark stuff and various other bits 
and he was part of that world of you know he was he looked as rock and roll as the bands you know that he did and he yeah. got you know a smack habit and he became a casualty in the world of rock and roll as well but everyone wanted to be the gonzo journalist and they were writing as much about their experience being on the road with the band as the band themselves so it was it it became this almost a caricature didn't it and you know again life on the road was horrendous but i did an interview with uh, cherry vanilla and um her life yeah. is just like quite horrendous actually in places isn't it you know she, she yeah. sort of, <laughs> it's not one that you'd want to repeat you know and and it's like yeah, oh yeah. my god cherry that's just that's a bit uncomfortable <laughs> isn't it really so um it's like yeah so women did get a really rough time and i suppose that's because when we, when i was growing up in the 70s and 80s people used to say when they got interviewed about why they got into music they would always go well it's sex drugs and rock and roll then something happened a decade or two ago and someone said don't keep saying that because we you know you probably should be in prison for that so um can we just forget the sex drugs <laughs> and rock and roll you know just forget the whole lot you know what i mean it's just all yeah, a bit yeah. yeah you know things have started coming out and i suppose you know you think oh you know it's a sad when a few musicians die but you think oh yeah that's possibly for the better because you know, <laughs> you know possibly for the better <laughs> <laughs> you know that's kind of that one rested because you, you know I mean because it was all that you know when I was growing up you know that Led Zeppelin and the Ronan Stones it was this debauched tour and things that happened on these tours that people wrote books about the Hammer of the Gods and it was all you know and, and young people thought Hammer of the God yeah it was so boring I know is, and, and then Ian Hunter from Mott the Hoople did a book on being on the road so you know you can see why it um Yes, the way they, they, they sort of came. So when you, so were you a person who just became obsessed with, with this kind of project that you started to do because of feeling like a pioneer on it? Um, well, I don't think I'm a pioneer. Like there are other uh, oral history collections that exist out there in the world. Um, you know, like a lot of, a lot of people have written about women of rock or have written oral history books. So I don't want to, I, the, the only thing that I will admit is that, yes, I became obsessed and not only obsessed, not obsessed with like doing the interviews, but I really wanted to make them as accessible as possible. Like I wanted people to be able to find them and to be able to watch them, to, to write about these artists and to have something to cite. Um, so it's something that I want the general public to enjoy, but also to use for the kind of greater purpose of, um, you know, just changing the, the narrative that sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, male dominated narrative. So, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a, that's just the kind of person I am too. I've been like that since I was little. My sister still makes fun of me that if I get an idea in my head there, I will put 110% into it. I will, I will not stop. And, uh, I think it's a, I think it's a, a good purpose. You know, it's a valiant purpose and I'm willing to put the effort in. Um, you know, I mean, Yes, well, absolutely. Yeah. Did that, Did you, that make sense? Yeah. yeah no, it's I no. God, I'm I'm, I'm right there. You, know, you can see okay. for my yeah, little, you know. my, my little years. which is which is slightly worrying. It might, but do you? I mean, because because it's kind of interesting in the sense of 
because during the sort of 80s, I sort of, what I really liked about indie pop, apart from that was the period when I was growing up. And so, you you know, like Lenny from Motorhead used to say, you know, the music you grew up with from 16 to 18, you know, that's going to be special, however much, whatever comes along next, you know. So he loved, you know, him and David Bowie would always go Little Richard, Eddie Cochran, mm -hmm. Elvis Presley, you know, that was just what the music you had. And I realised in the 80s, you know, I really liked the fact that a lot of those indie bands didn't have that punk look, you know, the, you know, like I was doing this interview with this guy from Eater and he just said, oh God, I hated punk after about a year because yeah. you suddenly had to look like Sid Vicious and had to do all this kind of the gear. And you're thinking that's not like what punk should be. And, and Polystyrene from X-Ray Specs, you know, was really like, well, you know, so different to what the blokes yeah. were looking like and all the Sham 69 and all those kind of bands that were just like pub bands, but they just kind of slightly spiked their hair up. And then in the 80s, I really liked the fact that the, there were so many more types of music that came out. And there was a record label called Sarah Records that at the time were absolutely hammered by the music paper because they all said it was fey and it was all a bit twee. And mostly it was a lot of women, you know, just playing music and some of it was quite basic, but it was fine. You know, there was, I mean, Oasis sounds pretty repetitive to me. So, you know, you just <laughs> yeah. think, well, it, it's just what your taste is, isn't it? But then in yeah. the 90s, we had Britpop. So we had those bands like Sleeper and Elastica, and you had obviously, you had that kind of that post-grunge scene as well. So it was a very interesting time in the night, you know, the 80s, but I can see that from that, you know, you get the 90s. So it's kind of, a, yeah. it's great to have that documented. And I just wondered if you were keen or slightly curious about what was also happening in other countries. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the, so the the only reason I haven't, you know, ventured out of the country is just money. Like, I would love for this to be um, a global project. I actually, I've had a couple people even reach out. Um, someone from London, this was like three or four years ago, who was all gung-ho about, you know, taking over the kind of the European leg of Women of Rock World History Project. But like all of the other people that I've heard from who want to volunteer or who want to be a part of it, I think they realize how much work it is and that you don't get paid. And I spend my own money. <laughs> so it's like, I can't also pay for you. But if you want to do like, if you're as passionate as I am, and you want to build on this, great, I would love I will put your name on anything, you know, you can have all the credit, whatever. But most people don't want to do it because it's hard work. So my, my first, um, I was supposed to have an interview with Marianne Faithful, who I wrote the book about, but this was last year. And so we were scheduling it, coronavirus hit, then she got coronavirus. I had to cancel my UK trip. And um, I did have a few other people um, lined up. But it just hasn't happened yet because, you know, expense. But I'm, I mean, I'm very interested in uh other countries <laughs> yeah I'm not really I think I'm just I'm an Americanist because it's affordable if that makes sense well no <laughs> absolutely no I mean it it, it 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 does make sense I mean the world of zoom this time last year we had no idea what zoom was we you know in the 70s there was a lolly called zoom that's the, that's as far as zoom meant to me and then suddenly it's like oh my god we've got to log in and then Yes, and there was that kind of weird world that people were saying, oh, people might invade your kind of interview or your 
conference, but that's never happened in my life. I don't know. Oh, the Zoom bomb. Yeah, I've never had a Zoom bomber. I don't know. Yeah, I know people are like, Zoom bombers come in and they just like put their penis on your screen. I'm like, I've never seen that before in my life. <laughs> so. Yeah, it'd be like, you know, it'd be it's not at all British, actually. Yeah. So what, I mean, because of your curiosity with, with sort of the music world and, and sort of obviously women as well, did that sort of go into Marian Faithful? What was that, how did that feel, knowing that, again, her life story is really grim and the fact that, you know, um, it was kind of, I wouldn't say she was used, but it wasn't that good, was it? No, I mean, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't say it was good, um, but I don't really, I don't see her life as grim. Um, I think it's been written about that way a lot. And I think the way that she's been portrayed, um, you know, since I would say since like the eighties, when she finally kicked heroin after broken English, um, it's just kind of a, it's a, narrative that journalists have latched onto was this Rolling Stone, um, you know, suffering drug addict, drug addicted woman who is like always sad and lovelorn and kind of a mess. And that to me seems to be very far from the truth. Um, I, I mean, I, I wrote about her just for myself. <laughs> And then someone saw, you know, I have a website and this essay uh, that I wrote about Marianne Faithful got published in this little music blog. And, but I was just writing about her for fun. Like I write about people for fun all the time. Her album Negative Capability had just come out. And I've, I've been a fan of hers for a very long time. Uh, not only her, I mean her music, but I also feel that uh, personal connection as far as our um, our addictions and recoveries. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I don't remember what, what my main point was, but I always want to like help or I always want to sort of um, consider the fact that maybe she's not sad and her life's not grim um, because I think she has like a really great sense of humor. <laughs> she has this really dark um, sense of humor. Yes. And I think that gets lost a lot in her overall story. Um, does that make sense to yeah, you? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, no. I mean, I sort of realized that, that that kind of what I sort of mentioned is kind of no. Kind and of, I'm not saying like don't call her. You know, no, I, no. But I, I suppose okay. yes. I, I sort of, I suppose I sort of cringe at some of those kind of rock stories where people get kind of slightly damaged or they get slightly pushed to one side. I mean, I suppose we people like I don't know Angie Bowie is somebody who did a lot for David and you know created so much and you know it's incredibly complex and you don't know other people's relationships but at the same time she sort of gets slightly taken out of the story and I often think well you know I think Bowie's amazing I've always loved his work and stuff even his ter her terrible stuff is quite interesting but you know it's all part like of him just it, doing yeah. stuff but um but you know I do sort of think that you know sometimes 
to make the narrative easy, people just go, okay, let's not mention Angie. It's like, you know, David does this, this, and this, and it's like, oh yeah, that's quite nice, isn't it? Whereas it's like going back and, you know, like I said, I'd sort of speaking to Ava Cherry, Ava Cherry, that's the one who who was sort of was part of that kind of young Americans bit and and this kind of relationship she got in and and it's like, blimey, that's quite complex, isn't it? You know, it's it's um yeah, everybody. I don't know, everyone's kind of, you realise when you're in that moment, everyone's kind of fighting for survival, really, aren't they? And then some people come out of it better than others. And some people, mm-hmm. I suppose the people who move on quick to the next project seem to survive better than those who go, oh, what happened there? I just, I was, I thought we were all part of a gang here and you've just gone and buggered yeah. off, you know? So it's a, it's a yeah. kind of interesting one. And I guess I can see, you know, with certain bands, most of the bands I, I interview, you know, just don't have that kind of world that is, you know, like Bono from U2 or Michael Stipe from RBM, you know, and really good management. They, they're sort of faffing about and it all just goes terribly wrong, doesn't it? And then they kind of yeah. pick up the pieces and, and you, you realise that all those casualties, because there's also the band, is it Babes in Toyland, where, you know, there's yeah. a lot of kind of substance abuse and stuff like that. And you, you just think, God, that is, it's not a career for the light-hearted, is it? You need to have that kind of, if you want to survive at resilience, otherwise you end up a little bit wobbling around on stage, like, I don't know, what Amy Winehouse or somebody like that, which is often a bit uncomfortable to watch, really. Yeah, I know, um, now I'm, I remember <laughs> earlier in the interview, I said that my dream was to be a famous musician um, when I was younger. Nope, as soon as I started doing these, inter- I. Ooh, anonymity, that's the dream. Like just making cool shit behind the scenes. I I feel I'm like so grateful that that didn't happen for me. <laughs> yes. I wouldn't want it. Uh yeah, and especially dealing with things like like drugs and alcohol like Marianne Faithful did um in the shadow of the Rolling Stones who were able to kind of wear that that or carry that image um in a way that enhanced their careers where you know back then that wasn't an option for for women so she just kind of became like the heroin addicted slut in the bearskin rug (laughs) i mean there was no way that she was going to get out of that unscathed you know yeah but, but do yeah, you feel? But do you feel like with Courtney Love, do you feel that she's managed to sort of pull her sort of life around relatively well? Well, I know she has now. I think she's one of the most vilified women in pop culture ever, but also in rock music. And that is not to say that I like her as a person, or I don't know her. I know her friends. Um, I know people who know her and care about her, but I think that the the public treats drug addicted men very differently than they treat drug addicted women. So, you know, her husband was a heroin addict, but has somehow become like this Jesus Christ type martyr, which the world would be such a great place if everyone treated heroin <laughs> treated heroin addicts that way. Um, not just like the boy blonde genius in nirvana you know if people treated the guy on the corner that way um the heroin addict on the corner of the world would be a much better place but i think that you would be hard pressed to find a a woman who is an addict um 
be treated that well by the general public. Like it's not going to happen. It's sexist. Um, I think that her big personality overshadows her, uh, talent and, um, and it also overshadowed the fact that she was a person who was sick and suffering, who suffered a great loss and who was a raging drug addict until very recently. Like she finally got sober. I think she just celebrated two years clean and she's a completely different person. Um, she's not that, that Courtney love that we all saw in the 1990s. Um, I know because it's interesting when you said that because I was thinking about people like William Burroughs who sort of had this kind of like oh you know oh yeah he's like a he's a god now you know he killed someone and it's like like he actually did he killed his wife you know playing a game fucked up I'm not saying that it's as like I have so much compassion for anyone who is a drug addict but I'm what I get upset about is just the is the sexism and just it's different for women than it is for men, you know? <laughs> like, people accuse Courtney Love of killing her husband, um, which is just, if, if there were any chance that Courtney Love killed her husband, she would be in jail so fast because so many people hate her. People would love to see her rot in prison. There's no fucking way that she did it. And then you've got William Burroughs, who literally killed his wife, and people are just like, He's amazing. He's great. That's okay. That's just Bill. For he was you. a drug addict, junkie. It's fine. <laughs> you know? yes. Bill just having a bad day. Yes. Yeah. So, 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 how have you? Just lastly, I mean, how have you coped with the, you know, your project and all the bits and pieces you're doing? A with lockdown and also what you've got coming up next um, for hopefully the rest of the year and next year. Oh, well, I haven't been coping very well. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. I've done, I have not done any interviews for a year. Um, I talked to Susie Quattro over Skype, which was great. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, I mean, it wasn't good enough where I could like put it up anywhere. Um, so I haven't done any interviews, but I have been going through the backlog um i got pretty much all of the transcriptions done so all of the money that i made last year for the project which was for traveling i put towards transcription costs um so i'm working on this big kind of website overhaul where people will be able to go on to an interview have also have the written transcript available to them and you'll be able to type in a keyword right and it will like jump to that portion of the interview um yeah so it's like it's expensive um i finally met some people who know how to do that but i don't and i also don't have any time (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so i've done the transcripts um i'm in a, a phd program i'm a phd candidate in history at umass amherst so i'm also working on my dissertation I'm working on, uh, I picked up a literary agent uh, and I'm working on an oral history of rock music. Uh, So I started that. And I wrote the Marianne Faithful book, Why Marianne Faithful Matters, which is out 
in July on University of Texas Press and in August in the UK uh, with Faber and Faber. So you wow. too. Yeah. That is amazing. Because there was mm -hmm. another book coming out. Gosh, I'm doing this is terrible, isn't doing this online. Why somebody else matters. The well, there's a, it's a whole series. It's the Music Matters series. So today, Why LaBelle Matters came out. Um, That's the one. There's, yeah, the UK Faber and Faber is releasing Why Solange Matters, Why Karen Carpenter Matters, and then Why Marion Faithful Matters. So, but it's this whole series. They're great books. I Why why Karen Carpenter Matters won a, a bunch of awards and um, they're just really short polemics. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think they're really interesting. I own a bunch of them and I think that they're fun and enlightening reads. Well, well, funny enough, Karen Carpenter was probably the, the Carpenter's album was probably the, one of the first ones I ever listened to quite obsessively before I kind of discovered my brother's record collection, which was slightly different. But I still say that if you like the Carpenters, you're definitely going to like Joy Division and the Smiths. Because because I kind of oh, think yeah. if, if you if you hear a song called I Say Goodbye to Love, no one seems to care if I should live or die or Rainy Days <laughs> and Mondays. I mean, it's like Ian Curtis, you know, it's like it's just it, so yeah. depressing, isn't it? And yeah. the way she sings that, and she's not just singing it, she really is owning that song. And it's just, I, I do think Karen Carpenter is extraordinary. So, um, I can and as a drummer too, I mean, she's a really great drummer. I don't, I don't think she's appreciated enough as, yes. as a drummer because she was just in the, this brother sister pop band. So, but she had chops. Yes, she did. It's interesting because I've done quite a few interviews with, um, women drummers, not just because, anyway, they're in the band. They're, and drummers have a really bad time in bands, don't they? I mean, really bad time. And um, women drummers seem it's to It's the most, I've, <laughs> I've been playing drums in a band for, it's like the longest time I've ever spent in one band. And it's great. I can sit in the back in my, we dress up, I wear like these body suits and all, everyone's not staring at me. I love not, like not having to be a front person. It is a big responsibility because you're sort of in charge of <laughs> the whole um, the whole train. Yeah. But uh, if you're playing punk music, it doesn't really matter. So no. it's not like I play with a metronome or anything. Well, but I, think it I is like it that. I mean, I think generally, yeah. Well, going back to Patty Schemmel, I remember like I would listen to her. I would listen to Live Through This, and I would try to play what Patty Schemmel played. Um, after, you know, the internet and I started, you can watch videos, yeah. right? They never point the camera at the drummer, so I could never see what she was doing. And it's still, like, whenever I <laughs> watch videos and I want to see what the drummer's doing, I get so mad because people always focus on the lead singer and it's like the drummer and the bassist are always sort of in the periphery. And most uh, musicians, and most musicians will say, especially singers, you know, the band will just—it's about the drummer that will pull the whole band together. So it's quite responsible. But I think it's it being in the studio as a drummer—it's particularly difficult with the, the click track was the thing that. Oh yeah, no, I don't even think I would ever. We just rec I record myself, and I don't know if I'll ever be confident enough to go into a yes. studio. <laughs> and have to deal with that yeah I get fired 
it was it was quite <laughs> tricky because because it was um, the woman from the go-betweens, Lindy Morrison, and she you know there was a bit of a you know um, a Fleetwood Mac kind of dynamic in the band, but anyway the producer said, look, if you want to hit record, this is what it could sound like without your you know partner on the drums, or you could have your partner on the drums, but it's not going to be very good. And and he kind of went with the producer, which obviously broke their relationship up. They always do. I know that's what happened to Patty Schemmel too. Yes, I remember yeah. that. Jeez. Yeah, Johnny One Take took her place in the studio. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, hopefully, yeah, just a music industry stuff. Yeah, it's be- it's best, like you said, it's best to be in the background and just kind of enjoy it and just kind of yeah, and re- just record yourself. Anyone can do anything they want now. It's like, yes, yes. you don't even so, need to go to So just studio. lastly, I mean, if you could have said something to a, a 16, 18 year old self, say, that was starting out in your, on, your, on your journey, if someone could have said something to you back then, what, you know, with the wisdom that you've you, you kind of accumulated over the decades, what would you whisper in their ear, even if they might ignore it? What would you say, oh, by the way, I'll give you some quite good advice, you know? <laughs> just like life advice? Yeah, I mean, because often, you know, I've often mentioned this to people, and they, they, they get quite serious. They, you know, like, um, is it Jarbo from the Swan? She said, just get as much education as you can. It's like, mm, okay, or yeah. just enjoy, or just enjoy it, or you know, don't drink so much and stuff like that. But just those, or read the contract of, you know, what you're going to sign because that's going to destroy you. Um, you know, those <laughs> kind of. <laughs> so I just wondered if there was some that you would think, oh yeah, that's something that that younger self definitely has learned, but you know, then when, when, when they started, they definitely didn't know. I just wonder what your kind of bit of, like a bullet point yeah. or even two bullet points would be. Yeah, oh my gosh. Well, there's the cheesy stuff, just like, I don't, you know, just calm down. Everything's gonna be fine. You know, just wait, <laughs> let <laughs> things kind of take their course. But also it's difficult for me to answer because I was such a, I was, I was just so full of anxiety and self-loathing. I was so depressed for so long. I mean, from a teenager throughout my drinking and well into my sobriety. So I don't feel like I even um, sort of found my ideal self until maybe like five years ago. Right. Uh, yeah. And this is the first time in my life that I've ever felt okay with myself. Like I feel pretty, pretty good. Most days I like what I do. Um, I like my life. It's not perfect. Wish I had some money, but you know, hopefully that'll come. What's more important to me is that I, that like I have a greater purpose and, uh, yeah, so it's like I don't even know what I would have told myself because I was so unhappy and it probably would have just been the cheesy thing like you know, you're fine. You don't have to be any cooler or prettier or smarter or like it's all going to work out for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> I mean if if everyone could just like themselves a tiny bit, just find like like for me, if I had just liked even one part of myself, I think I probably wouldn't have had to go through everything that I went through. Um, so I think just like accepting. Is that, quite, is that quite a weird thought now that, that 
when you look at yourself in in this in this space and 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 how you are that that you could think you know that you know what you just said wait what was the question <laughs> <laughs> is it quite strange? I got lost. I got no lost. is it quite strange now that you're in the where you are now sort of realizing that you just oh, didn't yeah. you just didn't have any of that kind of confidence or that light in yourself and you must look in the mirror and think to yourself, you know, without sounding like Tony Robbins, obviously, but you know, like, hey, this is good. Whereas, you know, <laughs> God, I couldn't, I couldn't have thought that when I was sixteen or seventeen. That's quite a leap, isn't it? Oh yeah, and just to think that had I known that this would be my life at sixteen, I think it would have blown my mind. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't. But yeah, I mean, I just, I never, ever, um, I never imagined that this is where I would be in my life. I definitely don't have that Tony Robbins thing where I look in the mirror and say, you're great. I'm like very self-deprecating. My, my first thoughts are always negative. So it's, it's a, it's something that's another thing with the constant vigilance that I have to like pay attention to what I'm saying to myself all the time. <laughs> because my my uh my kind of like initial thoughts and feelings about myself or about my life are not to be trusted because I'm still deep down like that same kind of I got I have those depressive tendencies it's like below the surface you know it takes right. it takes work um I have to work at it to to be okay with who I am but yes. I would say that like yeah for the for the most part like last five years I've just been like wow I can't believe that I did all all of this <laughs> but that's pretty good um yeah I wouldn't have wouldn't have imagined it it's not what I thought I would be doing well I suppose um, I mean it's quite interesting because I think it's it that idea that it's not just literally going to drop on onto your lap or your consciousness, no. but you have to work on something all the time. Yes. I mean, I suppose it's a bit like the world that is saying those positive mantras, which are really corny when you think about them. But then you realise perhaps that's what a lot of people do every day, just have a quick kind of meditation or a quick kind of check in, you know, even though it's like, oh, God, this feels a bit odd. You know, surely I've got it. I've done it, you know, a couple of weeks mm -hmm. ago. Surely that would be enough. But you realise... It's something that has to, a bit like running, if you're going to keep fit, you can't just go, yeah. yes, I was very good five years ago. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think that'll be fine. I'll be fine in the next race. You, you kind of have to keep working on it every day. And I suppose mentally, you know, we forget when we're young that probably the brain's not that much different to the body in the sense it needs to be trained, trained so much. So, yeah, it's yeah, interesting. True. I'm a big proponent of uh, self-actualization. Like that. some, I, yeah, I'll usually say things, even if it's just something that I want to do, I'll say it out loud and be like, oh, I, I'm doing this. I'm going to do this thing because then I, I feel like I have to follow through or I have to at least attempt it. Yeah. So um, maybe David, we all have a little Tony Robbins in us. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think, I think mixing, I think mixing self deprivation and uh, self-actualization is, is a good combination, isn't it really? Mm. Because you've got to laugh at yeah. yourself, but at the same time, it'll be... Sense of humor is also a must. That would be my other piece of advice, 
would be like, don't take yourself too seriously. I still say that to people now. I know people, I'm just like, if I ever become like that, someone put me out of my misery. If I ever <laughs> take myself too seriously, I, I do. I just want someone to like throw me off a cliff because that's a terrible kind of person. You need to yes. maintain a sense of humor about yourself at all times. It's okay to be serious about your work, which I believe we are, we're both crazy and still like pursuing this line of work. So you got to take that seriously. But once you start to take yourself seri too seriously, I think it's over. And you're like, no fun. You're not valuable to anyone. No. So you got to, you got to, you got to keep, you got to keep light and kind yes. of, yeah, you because know, that's quite a good people. Anyway, look, Tanya, this has been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much. Both my dogs are up now, blindly walking around because now they want to eat. So this was perfect. Okay. Well, look, thanks up. again. And if you want, I can um, send you the link. But all the best for the uh, the, the project, and um, I'll yeah, look forward you. to, to uh, keeping an eye on your website and um, and stuff. And also you thanks too. for the top tips on the um, on the books and uh, such like. But anyway, oh, look, yeah. thank you. Thanks so much, David. Take care. See you later. Bye bye. There you go. Bye. That. That is how you say goodbye in a rock and roll way. I love to leave those last bits in. It's all so fumbly. Right. Anyway, that is a big thank you to Tanya Pearson for giving me the time for that interview. And as I said, and if you're still paying attention, if you go to tanyapearson.org, you'll find out more about all her stuff. And uh, yes, Women of Rock, Oral History Project. And also the book, Why Marianne, Marianne Faithful Matters, out on the University of Texas Press, Faber and Faber, and elsewhere. Right. And if you want to contact me for some exciting reason, make it nice, though. You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And, um, yes. and also, all these have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, indie bands from the 80s. That's my fond excitement, anyway, fondness, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.